Welcome to the You May Be Right Podcast, part of Elite Sports Radio, the place where New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox fans can't stand one another. Or maybe they can. Podcast, property of Elite Sports New York, your one-stop stuff, or one-stop shop, should I say, for uh, the pulse of New York City sports. I am Josh Benjamin, and sitting next to me is some random Red Sox fan I I found on the street. Please introduce yourself, sir. How you doing? I'm Paul DeSena. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. You're my co-host. Here here as always to bring you the best, uh, the best in Red Sox Nation and the best analysis around, uh, along with my co-host, Josh Benjamin. That's how I like to think of it. <laughs> but, but, but in all seriousness, uh, you know, look, it's uh, they tell you that winter is coming, and the White Walkers might be walking, and the Ice Spiders might be ice spideying. But it's nice and warm in here by the hot stove, isn't it, Josh? It is very warm. Uh, it's, we're not quite at the boiling point yet, so don't put uh, the pasta in. Quite yet. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> don't put the chicken in the pot. Or for, uh, I'm a Jew, so that's what I'd say at least. <laughs> Anyway, so um, here we are live at Rivington Studios on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Scenic Rivington Studios. Scenic Rivington Studios. Looking around, I see two Marshall amps, three mic stands. There's a drum set right here. There's a kit. The whole yeah. kit. Yeah, they were going to play with that a little bit. Oh, man, that, that cymbal's broken. I don't want to mess with that too much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're here today uh, for the next hour to discuss the winter meetings and what went down. Uh, so let me get the timer going real set. Uh, so it's first off, it was a big week. Yeah, not that big. We uh, Bryce Harper and Manny Machado do not have homes yet. No, and I don't think they're going to have homes until very late in the winter. Um, uh, I don't think they're going to have home have homes until after the new year. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think we could be looking at February one. I uh, think we could be looking at late January. I'm not going to go quite that far. I'm going to give them two weeks after Christmas. I don't know. The, the look, the uh, you know, uh, Buster only came out um, on a you know reporting in a couple of different sources that. Uh, that there were there were there was a glut of free agents last year. There's an even bigger glut this year, and there's going to be even bigger glut of free agents after this year. It seems that the owners are wise to the players' strategy and getting signed over the winter, and that they're just content. Many of the owners are content to wait many of the players out, and that's and that's a serious issue for players looking like the Harpers, like the Machados of the world, looking for big money in big years. All right, well, that being said, let's start the timer right now. Uh, we closed the last show uh, talking about Nathan Avaldi, and sure enough, the very next day, you called it, he got Porcello money. The feel-good signing of the year! Seriously, how can you not bring this guy back after his performance in Game 3 of the World Series, after after uh, he proved himself to be a, not only a flex starter, but a flex bullpen guy he and it's could, and it's very funny you mention that because i th- i think it was buster or maybe it was uh maybe it was bob nightingale or it was one of one of those two apparently the phillies had talked to avaldi about being their closer i'm not surprised 
I mean, he's he's the kind of guy who seems to really fit in anywhere on a pitching staff, and Boston right now could really use that flexibility. They've got a little bit of extra on the start. They've got a bit, a little bit, a little bit extra on the starting pitching side. But they're quite frankly, with the loss, especially with the loss of Joe Kelly this week to the to the Los Angeles Dodgers for three years and twenty five point five million, they're a little thin in the bullpen. If they need a little help one month in the bullpen, Nathan could go there. If they need to have, if they want to have him start, he could do that. I mean, I think it's a great signing for the and, Sox. And that doesn't even uh, we haven't even talked about the uh, two big relief arms on the market still right. in terms of the setup guys. You've got David Robertson, who apparently, despite being an Alabama boy, he and his wife live in Rhode Island. Yeah. So and so the way I see it, he's either. Yankees, Mets, or Red Sox. Yeah, I feel like I, I feel like he could be a New England boy uh, next year. Yeah, and then there's uh, Adam Adamino, who's got that crazy slider. Right, and he could strike out Babe Ruth, apparently. And of course, uh, Zach Britton is still around. Yes, and, but I think with with the Adavinos, the Brittons, uh, the Robertsons, and the Kimbrels of the world, I think the owners are content to wait and see. Nobody yeah. wants nobody wants to make the first move. Nobody wants to set the market because everyone knows that once the market is set, there's there's really no backing down from that. And speaking of the market being set, Nathan Ovaldi getting four years, what was it, like 72, 74 and a half million, something like that? It is four years and 68 million at 17 million a year. And similarly, the Yankees gave $17 million a year, or it's not officially yet, they're about to. Um, Brian Hoke called the deal the other day on the one-yard line. Jay Hab is coming back to the Bronx. Not surprised. For $17 million a year, two years guaranteed, plus a vesting option for a third. Look, regardless of what he did in the postseason, Jay, the fact of the matter is Jay Hab came to the Yankees and delivered, didn't he? Yes, he did. He, w- he went, I think, 6 or 7-0 and in a Yankee uniform. And here's the crazy part. I think the Yankees overpaid him. I, I mean, I, th- I think both Ivaldi and Hap were overpays. However, I think both the Yankees and the Red Sox were up against it when it comes to starting pitching. I mean, I, I wrote an article for ESNY mere hours after, after the, uh, the Ivaldi signing was official. I said, Brian Cashman is going to have to prepare himself to overpay Jay Hap. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it, is, it is an overpay, but they do need him. Yes. And he's, um, a ni- he's a nice addition to that rotation. He really rounds it out. I think he's going to do great. Well, yeah, because after after Evaldi, um was signed, the New York Post came out saying how Hab was closing in on a three-year deal with the Phillies because that third year is what he wanted. Absolutely. Um, and at that point, I was saying, look, if another team is willing to offer him three years, let him have it because the Yankees, we have Jonathan Luizaga or Johnny Lasagna, for those who don't want to pronounce it, You've got. You could have taken a one-year flyer on James Shields, mm-hmm. and then I would have said. And then next year, formerly Big Game James. Yep. And then I was going to say. And then in 2019, throw the baby and the bathwater at um, at Rick Porcello because he's from New Jersey. He knows the area well. He's owned the Yankees in the past. Like if you can't beat them, bring them aboard. I mean that's. I mean that'd be that would certainly be a strategy that the Yankees could follow, or the Yankees can like the Red Sox. I think. Just wait out the 2019 free agent market because there's a lot of big arms coming up. Yeah, Chris Sale's coming up. Uh, Porcello. I mean, I, I didn't pull up the list as to, as to who's going to be there. I but think Kershaw's on the list. No, Kershaw just re-upped for uh, with the Dodgers. Well, I'm wrong and an idiot. I'm sorry. Well, you are a Red Sox <laughs> fan. Uh, but on the whole, um, let's go back to the Evaldi deal. Um, was the money right? Would you say? I mean, I think it's an. I called it the feel-good signing of the year for a reason. I think it's an overpay. Um, but is it an overpay by a lot? No. And do I do I hate it? No. In fact, I love the signing. I love the signing because he fits into any, into any and every part of that Red Sox pitching staff. 
I mean, he gives them he gives them flexibility like maybe maybe uh, they haven't seen since maybe Tim Wakefield in the early 2000s. Somebody who could just go go and fit in anywhere, and what's, right. what's more importantly, and they're going to need it, somebody who can eat innings. Yeah, and that's a, and that's a big reason why I think the Yankees ultimately re-signed Hap. Now, first off, in, in terms of overpaying. When Bryce Harper and Manny Machado are on the market, someone's going to get overpaid. Yes. When you, when you have the two, the top two players in baseball, arguably, available on the open market, it means that some people are going to get a lot of money, some people aren't going to get the money they wanted. People are going to get paid, yes. some are going to get paid more than others. Yes. And I think that in half, you have a classic case of an overpay. Because don't get me wrong, he's proven he can handle New York. Absolutely. He's proven he can handle the Red Sox. Absolutely. And... He and he was never going to get that third year because he's thirty six years old. Yeah, let, I, let, let's just be honest with each other. Un- unless he was a twenty game winner, let's say last year, he was never going to get that third year. I think, you know, I think it's his. It, I don't think his age really came into it. Again, I think the club pays based on the need for the club. And I think the Yankees felt that they needed somebody, and I think they're projecting, like I said last time, I think they're projecting out to a five- or a seven-game series against a rival. And who do you trust? And who do you want taking the ball for five or six or seven innings? And I feel that's, in part, that's what, that's what, that's what Hap got his paycheck for. Yeah, um, but at the same time, you're, really, you're paying him for someone who really wasn't turning into an elite pitcher until the last four or five years. I mean, fine, but he went seven and zero for you down the stretch, and it, and it might be an overpay based just on that. But his limited performance with the Yankees was good. It, not only good, it was outstanding. The playoffs aside, well, yeah, because, because like I, I said this for ESNY back in back in October, and I think I and I think I said it after his first couple starts of the Yankees. This is almost David Cohn 2.0. Yeah, no, he was he, because, was, he was something special. Yeah, because like we made made a deal with the Blue Jays. Similarly, he's a similar type of pitcher. He's relying on a lot of movement, not so much velocity. Because if Hap if Hap's curveball and slider are biting, game over. Yeah, it's almost like Adam Adovino slider. Yeah, uh, uh, a good friend of mine, it's Alec, deep, deep, great spin rate. Yeah, I mean, uh, someone who used to work for me, and I also a former podcast co-host of mine, uh, Alec Montecalvo is his name. He referred to Adam Adovino's slider as a Bugs Bunny slider, in that it's so filthy, it's so good that it's almost cartoonish. And I feel that with um, half secondary pitches, because he's primarily a fastball pitcher. I mean, he pitches yeah. off the fastball. Yeah, yeah. He, he threw his fastball about two-thirds of the time last year, yeah. uh, according to Fangraphs. Um, we don't know what his velocity is going to be like uh, in his age 36 season. I mean, look, it's going to go down over, you know, it'll probably drop more precipitously from 36 to 37 than yeah. it did from 30 to 31, but the fact of the matter is the performance still seems to be there. I, mean, I actually don't think it's as gross an overpay as you do. I don't, I, here, let me rephrase. It, it was not a gross overpay. I just figured that teams are going to look at his age because mm-hmm. he's 36 is old in pitching. And years. you're never getting that third year at 36. That's that's the craziest part of the deal to me is that he got that third well, year. Well, he, well, here here's where you're you're partially correct. The Yankees did offer Hap the third year, but it's in the form of a vesting option. If he hits I, th- I think it's 165 innings and maybe like 20 some 25 starts. Um, in the second year of that deal, the option kicks in. I mean, but it's a, but it's not like it's a club option, right? It's not like the club could say, "Well, thanks for the two hundred innings, but you're used up now." So yes, there you go. Yeah, so the Yan- the Yankees set a bar with that vesting option, so that 
it's not impossible for him to hit, but it's something where he's going to have to do a really good job of staying healthy. I mean, he's pretty durable. I think yeah, I think uh, he hits it. So do I. I, th- I think he hits it, and the good news for the Yankees is that if he proves to be more of a more of a burden than a boon, uh, let's say midway through the second year of the deal, it's an easily movable contract. They can move that deal somewhere else and have to cover minimal money, if at all. If the Yankees win the title next year and Hap goes three and zero in the postseason with a two point two ERA, was it an overpay? I'm gonna have to. Re- I'm gonna have to revisit my opinion if that actually happens. <laughs> Results speak for themselves. Those damn Red Sox fans always making me think. But but on the whole, you called Evaldi the feel good signing of the offseason. Definitely the Yankee, and that Evaldi with the Evaldi deal, the Yankees. I feel because um, I would have been happy to give Hap, let's say, twelve, thirteen million a year. Right. It got to the point where I think Cashman, ever the pragmatist, said to Hal Steinbrenner, "We got to go north of 15. And he wants to be there. I feel like yes. Hap wants to be in New York. I feel like he wants to be in this race. I feel like he wants to be pitching. You you know, against the best teams in the major leagues, and this this gives him another couple of years at least to do that. It absolutely does. Um, and I don't know. I'm excited about the future of the AL East race based on those two signings. It feel you know I I don't want to I don't want to make too dire a comparison, but it does feel like the offseason does feel a bit like World World War One, where you have two great great powers and the Red Sox and Yankees kind of coming at each other, and they seem really evenly matched right now, and not. And not one, neither of the teams to date has been able to land the at least the offseason knockout punch that gives either one a clear advantage over the other. That's very true. Anyway, moving on, because uh, the alarm went off there, that means it's time for us to change topics. All righty. Um, I figured that, or Paul and I figured that since it is the winter meetings, it is the offseason, money's flying around in all directions. Let's talk about the worst decisions our teams have made in the offseason, because there are a lot of them, especially on my end. Babe Ruth is excluded. Yes, Babe Ruth is excluded, and as are the plethora of signings, uh, you know, Jacoby Ellsbury is excluded. All the decisions that George Steinbrenner made in the 80s when he pretty much rage quit after every year they didn't win the World Series. And to the Sox fans, all of Charrington's signings, I thought they were low-hanging fruit, so I didn't go with them. So there will be no Pablo Sandoval. There will be no um, Adrian Gonzalez. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez is on there. That's an Epstein signing. Oh, all right. Okay. Well, and that's it. Let's kick but definitely, off. Definitely no Pablo Sandoval. Definitely not Rick Porcello, although I would never put Rick Porcello in the in the category of worst signing ever, although I did think that he was overpaid when he was originally signed, but hell, the guy won us the title. Moving on. Paul, we're going to kick this off because you specifically requested it. Uh, starting off with the bad Red Sox moves, what have you got? All right. So let me take you back to 1989. 89. I was three years old. And so if, if anyone remembers, and I vaguely remember this, Watching the World Series in 1989, Josh, do you remember what happened? The World Series 1989. It was the it was the Battle of the Bay. It was yeah, that was the yeah the earthquake uh, kicked in Game Three. The yeah, this is my party trick. Uh, Oakland swept the Giants. Um, the managers were Tony Larusa for the A's and Roger Craig for the Giants. So I was watching the television for some reason. It was on in my house. I was about eight years old. I was watching the television when the camera just started to shake. And the announcer started to exclaim, and then, it, and then, of course, the camera cuts to technical difficulties. There was an earthquake out in San Francisco. Yeah. Be that as it may. In 1989, the Red Sox were 83-79. and 79. That was good for third place, and they were six games behind the Toronto Blue Jays. Who finished first in the AL? And who finished first in the AL East yep. at 89 and 73, behind the bats of uh, Fred McGriff, George Bell, and behind the pitching of Jimmy Key. 
Dave Steve, too. The Astros also finished in third at 86 and 76. They were six games behind the Giants, who, as we know, went to the World Series behind the bats of Will Clark, Brett Butler, but unfortunately they did lose to the Oakland Athletics. Now, in the run-up to the 1990 season, the 1990 season is actually a pretty interesting season viewed as a whole, but in the run-up to it, there was a labor dispute. The crux of the matter is, and how it affects the Red Sox, is simply that spring training started late. There was a 30-day lockout. Yep. And the and the major dispute between the owners and the players was the major sticking point was arbitration. Yeah. And the and and the owners wanted the owners wanted originally the owner wanted the owners wanted six years of club control with salaries decided by some algorithm, some economic algorithm. The players, of course being the players, wanted, hey, just make us free agents every year to sign for wherever we want and for as much money as we want. Ultimately, they decided they decided on arbitration. It used to, it had been three years. They lowered it down to two so players could seek arbitration after two years. Of course, the owners hated arbitration because all they, they, all they saw is our arbitration doing as, as raising salaries. But it's against this backdrop that, that these two clubs, the Houston Astros and the Boston Red Sox, enter spring training in 1990. So no surprise, both clubs have really high hopes, right? So yep. the Houston Chronicle reports in March of 1990, quote, Astros tout young pitching prospects. Middle relievers may give Astros lift. Strong bullpen may mean fast start. And uh, memorably, the Houston Post, Kevin Newberry writes, how confident with proven lineup? Of course, back on the East Coast, the Red Sox are easy. The press, the press around the Red Sox is equally optimistic. St. Peter, with the St. Petersburg Times, Mark Topkin writes: Royals, Rangers, Red Sox rising to the top. Boston should contend in weak division. And Bill Ballow, with the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, writes: Twenty-four and four Clemens could mean a 1990 World Series title. Are you kidding me? <laughs> At any rate, but not to be outdone for fatalism, because that's how Boston was back then. Remember, the curse is still alive, is still alive and well. And the curse is not alive and well. You won in 2004, get to the damn move. The curse was alive and well, and at that time, you had a 70-year drought. A seven. Oh, then the curse was alive. Yes, it was. That can't be gainsaid, man. You had a 70-year drought. And that's and that I think is part of the backdrop against when when decisions like that get made. Be that as it may, Boston not short for fatalism says uh, Nick Cafardo with the Boston Globe wrote in March of 1990. Nick uh, Cafardo's been there that long. Oh, he's been there a while. Wow. Okay. He's been there a while. Dan Shaughnessy was there back then. Yep. Bob Ryan was Gordon there back then. Needs. I mean, they, I mean, they've they've all. I feel like I feel like they've never left. Yeah, they never have. Anyway, so what, what's Nick Cafardo say? Nick, Nick Cafardo had said, the power shortage could be a problem along with lack of speed and home runs. <laughs> um, this Red Sox team in 1990, it's a good lineup. Yeah. It's, actually, it's actually really good. Well, it's yeah, actually, yeah, because you, you still had Boggs. You had, uh, you had uh, Dewey Evans yep. out in the outfield. Ellis Burks won Ellis a silver. Burks coming up. Ellis yep. Burks won a silver slugger that year. Yep, that's My, right. You had Mike Greenwell. You had Tom Bernanski. You know, the, yeah. it wasn't a bad lineup. They had 106 home runs. As it, which back then it was a lot. Not that many. 106 home runs, and they hit. Uh, uh, what do you call it? And they stole 53 bases, which really wasn't a lot. Yeah. They didn't have much power and they didn't have much speed. But be that as it may, last the, the last thing, if anything could tell the you know, the the curse 
the the becursed Boston Red Sox that this season might not have been the best season to make key and crucial moves was that right before the right before the 1990 season, Tony Knigliero dies in a hospital in Salem, Massachusetts of, oh, kid, God. of kidney failure. Jeez. You know, look. His life was his life was way too short, and his career was way too short, as any Red Sox fan knows. Yeah. But could the omens have been any more clear for Lou Gorman? Could the omens have been? Could the writing have been any more clear on the wall that this might be a bit of a dark year for the Red Sox? But, but, uh, and as if things couldn't get any worse, guess what? Specter from 1986 was trying to make a comeback. Not Buckner. It was Buckner. At, oh, at, not at Bill age, Buckner. At age forty, Bill Buckner has a has a has a great spring by you know by any standards. Makes the team at age forty, ends up retiring on June fifth with three home runs. With I'm sorry, with one home run, three RBIs, and batted one eighty six. That's uh, just sad. That was Buckner. That was Buckner's swan song. I mean, I think that. I think the fans had forgiven him by then, or at least gotten into something approaching acceptance. Yeah. But I think it took Bill way, way longer to forgive Boston than it took, you know, than it took them. So, to what, so him. what's this bad move that Boston made? Because we're actually running short on time on, the, on this segment. Fine. So it's sorry, the, dude. So, so it's the beginning of August. Yep. Red Sox are tied for first. Yeah. Guess where the Houston Astros are? Dead last. Not that. Well, I think dead last. Uh, but how many games are behind? How many games behind? Ten. Nineteen. Sheesh. Okay. Houston selling. Boston is buying. All right. right. And at third base, the Red Sox have Wade Boggs in the majors, right? Yeah. But in the minors, they've got two other. In the minors, they've got two other guys. They've got All Tim right. Nairing and they've got Scott Cooper. Tim Nairing had, was called up by then. Tim Nairing actually works for the Yankees right now. And Tim Nairing just so we would just so end up that Tim Nairing's back. Tim Nearing had a promising promising start to his career, but his back would end up yep. seeing him out of the game, yada, yada, yada. Yep. But behind Wade Byers, you've got Tim Nearing, you've got Scott Cooper, and at AA, you had a young guy named Jeff Bagwell. Oh, I know where this is going. He was killing it. He was killing it. The New York Times featured him in an, featured him in an article in August, and you could, you could, if you look at the papers back then, you could see the drum beat beating. You know, we've got this great young guy, but don't do it. You've got this great young guy, but don't do it. But don't do it, Lou. You got this great young guy, but the, pom- the, the problem is, general manager Lou Gorman at the time yep. has a bullpen problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, and his bullpen, minus Larry Anderson and minus Lee Smith, ends ends that season with an ERA uh, at at about four uh, four point seven five. That's not good. It, it wasn't good at all. I mean, he's got injuries left and right in the bullpen. They're letting up runs, yada yada yada. So he pulls the trigger and he makes the move. And he trades Jeff Bagwell for at the time thirty seven year old Larry Anderson. Larry Anderson going to be a free agent after the season, but yep. had had I think his, the best year of his career the year previous, and is known as a shutdown reliever. Yeah, and that's what they need. Because I'm looking at I'm looking at the numbers right now. Nineteen eighty nine, Larry Anderson in sixty appearances for the Astros posted a one point five four ERA, and the Red Sox he only appeared in fifteen games with them, but a one point two three ERA, which which is great. One point two three ERA in twenty two innings with the Red Sox with a 1.2 war in a month. At age 37. At age 37. He was important to them down the stretch. Yeah. He, he helped, you know, he, 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 the games that he pitched, the games that he pitched and the wins that he pitched in were crucial to the Red Sox winning the division. So, he pulls the trigger, he makes the deal. And the Red Sox then lost to the A's in the uh, ALCS, right? And what happens? But the Red Sox win the division, and everyone's high on it. Even Nick Cafardo writes... 
and I quote. What we got? And I'm getting it. And I'm getting it there. And I'm getting it. Give Gorman credit for the following. He did not mortgage the future. He did not panic. All his acquisitions contributed at some point. His winter acquisitions were solid. As he had intended, he approved team chemistry and by addition and subtraction, and he did what he thought was right while many of us thought he was wrong. And who's to say who was right? Gorman's Red Sox won the American League East title. And this is where the Red Sox sit in 1990. They're four years away from one of the greatest tragedies in Red Sox history with the loss in 1986 to the Mets. It it was title or bust, and quite frankly to me... They were a middle of the road team, a, a good to a good to a good to very good team that made an ill-advised move to try to make a play for the title. They were swept by the A's in four games. They score four runs the entire time. All right. Anyways, well, that was. I feel that with that move, though, you can't get too mad about it because at that point you don't quite know how prospects are going to pan out on the major league level. Right. And I'm going to counter that that deal with a move the Yankees made in 2002. I am convinced to this day that this very trade cost the Yankees the 2003 World Series against the then Florida Marlins. So the year is 2002. It's Jason Giambi's first year in New York. Yankees have a promising young starter, a lefty named Ted Lilly, who is raw. He's got some problems with walks. He can't really advance past the sixth inning, because that's where he always hits the wall. But he's got great Ks per nine. I believe that his first full year, his first full year with the Yankees, his Ks per nine were I don't know, like eight and a half, something like that. Hey, this might have been two thousand two. You never know. Anyway, so the summer's coming. The Steinbrenners want to bolster the rotation just a little bit because no disrespect to Ted Lilly, you can't really trust him in a in a big league game. So a three team trade happens involving the Oakland A's and the Detroit Tigers. So in the deal, Lilly goes to Oakland. The where he stars. Uh, I wouldn't say stars, but he kind of kickstarted his career. And then Oakland sends to the Tigers a young first baseman named Carlos Pena, who had, I think, had I think a, a couple 30 home run seasons for the Tampa Bay Rays. Mm-hmm. And coming to the Yankees is a right-handed pitcher named Jeff Weaver. Now, Weaver at the time, he, he wasn't a great pitcher, but he was putting together, he had put together a season where he was, he was able to hold his ERA in the mid-threes, let's say low fours. So... He's still learning how to pitch, but the ceiling is there. So he comes to the Yankees, and it's a match made in hell from the start. I would rather walk through the streets of Worcester, Massachusetts after midnight than have to relive this trade, but here we are right now. Worcester's still a rough place, is my understanding. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho, so he... The thing about Weaver, and I remember that I remember commentators saying about this, he had a great fastball and he had a great slider and some great off-speed stuff. His problem was he couldn't decide what he wanted to rely on. So he's all over the place as a pitcher, like I said, still learning how to pitch. And with the Yankees, he is his ERA. It's a, it's pretty much Sunny Gray 2.0. Like in like away from New York, you didn't know what you were gonna get. In Yankee Stadium, you had to hold your breath. In Yankee Stadium is an intense place to play, and not, it is. and not everybody can rise to the occasion. Here's where 2003 comes into comes into play for me. Don't remind me of 2003. Well, this is at, this is after Aaron Boone, so here we go. Uh, game five of the World Series. It's an extra innings. Jeff Weaver comes in to do because we're at the point now where you have to put the long man in, right? And before you start thinking, okay, which starter can I afford to have throw an inning or two, right? Jeff Weaver comes in, I think it's maybe the 11th inning. 
up at bat for the Marlins, a, for, a future Boston Red Sox, Alex Gonzalez. Weaver leaves a complete and utter meatball over the plate. And Alex Gonzalez, who I think his career OPS, it's sub-1,000. The guy was not a power hitter by any stretch of the imagination. No, he was not. Parks went over the left field wall. Marlins go up 3-2 in the series. Josh Beckett works his magic in game six. Cut to me crying on the floor of my father's living room. I mean, at some point, that Florida Marlins team was a bit of a team of destiny. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not disputing that, but... The fates intervened in Chicago but here, to get them there. But here I am thinking, the year before you traded a young, promising lefty in Lilly. He, didn't, right. he, he was still learning how to pitch, but like I said, the ceiling was there. Right. Lilly goes on to enjoy a 15-year career playing for... Yankees, Oakland, the Cubs, the Dodgers. I remember the Blue Jays being in there for a hot second. Right. Later committed insurance fraud, I no, think. No, he had a nice career. Yeah, he, he, he had, committed insurance I'm fraud? I'm pretty sure he got bar- <laughs> he got arrested for like doing some shady stuff with insurance. That's crazy. Anywho, and here I am thinking... Hey, I'm going to Google this. Yeah, because here I am thinking, Ted Lilly easily could have been, that, been in Weaver's place. And he had a lot more deceptive stuff than Weaver. Right. He, w- he was a finesse pitcher, whereas Weaver kind of uh, flipped back and forth between that and relying on velocity. And Weaver, he after the Yankees, they eventually traded him to the Dodgers, I think, uh, before the 2004 season. Then he, he bounced around for another few years. Mm-hmm. But Ted Lilly, while never a Hall of Famer, never an ace, he was a good number three starter. No, and had a nice career. He yeah. Was, he was a work-a-day kind of guy. In 2003... If Ted Lilly's on the mound to say instead of Jeff Weaver, I that's that's does a little, the result change? That's a little attenuated, Josh. That's I, a little attenuated. I stand by Jeff Weaver cost us the 2003 World <laughs> Series. That is my truth, and I am living it. That is that's that's a little much. I mean, this is I mean, we're getting into butterflies' wings causes a you know a tsunami in in in, in Morocco. I know we're we're, we're, ta- we're talking butterfly effect. I mean, this is make sure. Okay, maybe. I, mean, I, I don't. I mean, I don't even know what to say. I mean, you're, 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 you, you didn't have a tinfoil hat when you came in here today. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I left it in the closet. <laughs> but, but anyway, this deal is a is a perfect testament as to why the Yankees always have to be careful right. when trading for pitchers. Sonny Gray, when he first came over, he was fine. You wasn't never, wasn't great. Yeah. Yeah. This year, it was like it was like AJ Burnett part two. Yeah, you never know. You, look, you never know who's going to come into the what is really a pressure cooker. It seems yes. in the AL East, and especially and especially in that very passionate, but I think less violent these days rivalry between Red Sox fans and Yankees fans. Right, the, the the rivalry. It's like we said. We said on the. It's, uh, on the, it's like we said on the last show. It, it is very much a friendly rivalry with some bad apples sprinkled here and there. I think so. But on the whole, I have full confidence that I could walk into Fenway Park next season in full Yankee gear, and I'd be okay. Yeah. Like like I, I um you remember the five game series two thousand six, uh, Son of Massacre. Yes. I went to two of those games. The first one, I walked in. Like, now keep in mind, I was 20 years old and very dumb at this point. Those were sad times for yeah. Red Sox fans. Yeah, so I had <laughs> I had um, the Yankee hat. I had an A-Rod jersey. I had some Yankee paint on my face. And except for one drunk guy who was later taken out by the Massachusetts State Troopers. Pretty nice. Because, because he slugged an off-duty one. Well, yeah. That'll, um, that'll get you in the click. Yeah, but but on the whole, like no, nobody messed with me. No. And, and, I, and I was with, like, four or five other guys. I sat in the bleachers at Yankee Stadium, had yeah. a great time, and never had a problem. I don't actually have too much Red Sox regalia because, I mean, look, in all the years that I've been a fan, 
my favorite players. They do come and they do come and go, and to a certain extent, I think we fans are rooting for laundry these days. Yes, I think it's okay. You know, we love the team, and we love to you know talk about them, uh, talk about the players, and we love to talk about the you know the moves that the teams make. But uh, yeah, all in all, I think the. I think it's a really sometimes it feels like a crapshoot and who's going to come in though to this even though violence or no it's an intense rivalry it is and those games feel like playoff games even when they're in April through the television so I can only imagine what they feel like on the field yeah it takes a special or at least a a guy with a specific makeup to come in there and star and not everybody has that and it's not just the stadium because when you're talking about the New York fans, I I mentioned this in an article I wrote about the Knicks uh, just the other day, actually. These fans demand results. Yeah. These are people who will sometimes pay upwards of $5 for a slice of pizza. They're used to winning. Yeah, they're not just used to winning. They, they are used to paying for high-quality things. Yeah. And that includes their sports teams. So if you're not going to give them results, they're going to boo you. Yeah. They're going to boo you, and they're not going to come to the park. Well, the Yankees will never have a problem selling out that park. I mean, if the Yankees were in last place, do you honestly think they'd have a sell sell out every every game? Fair point. You're right. You know, when the Yankees come in third, when the Red Sox come in fourth, the fans let them know it. The fans boo you. Yeah. And you know they don't show up in the numbers that they do when you're winning. There's a price to not winning in Boston as there is in New York. That's absolutely correct. Um, but the thing is, the other thing that can run you out of town in either of these teams. I think Josh, you'd agree, is the media. Yeah, I mean, Boston. Boston's media might be even more merciless than New York's. Noto- notoriously brutal. Yeah, because we've seen it with David Price. Up uh, now, with David Price, I'm not so sure whether he just didn't get along with John Farrell, mm-hmm. or if he was just like trying to settle in the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. But David Wells, who's the big tough guy himself, he's played for the Yankees, the Blue Jays. He had, he had that year with the Red Sox. When David Wells is saying how the fans and the media in Boston are ruthless. This guy who looks like he runs a biker bar someplace. This guy is a, a biker. Big, he's, a, he's a big bad guy, man. David Wells is a biker bar. There's a, there's a secret door in his back and the Hells Angels hang out there. <laughs> but if if a big scary looking guy like David Wells is saying Boston's Boston's fans and media are a little too intense. That's when you got to take a look in the mirror. You know, but speaking of the media, leads me right in to our second, to Boston's second worst free agent signing of all and of all time. Uh, and, well, you know, we're going to start the clock around that because we only got 20 seconds left on uh, on Ted Lilly. So starting the clock at 10 minutes, what do you got? Carl Crawford. Carl, I thought you said no Charrington signings. He's not a Charrington signing. He is a Theo Epstein signing in 2010. Ah, okay. So Carl Crawford comes to came to us from the Tampa Bay Rays. He looked yeah. he looked great. He's a 300 hitter for. Oh yeah, and I remember one year I think he had like 17 triples, something like that. Fast as fast as fast as fast could be. You know, had the mo- had uh, led the league in stolen bases three or four years. I, I remember Bay. when Carl Crawford was really becoming a household name playing down in Tampa Bay. Right. I think I was I was still a teenager at this point, but I remember saying to my friends, guys, the way this guy plays, it's like a more athletic Ricky Henderson. Fun, dynamic player. Yeah. Fun to watch, and he played like he loved the game. Can can beat other teams in so many different ways. So the Sox in 2011. Yep. Are coming off of two titles in 2004 and 2007, and I don't think I can understate what this has done to the psychology of the Red Sox fan. Sure. So the old fatalism is kind of faded away. Yep. 
And now there's this kind of giddy new reality in Boston. You've got the Patriots, you've got the Celtics, you've got the Sox, you've got the Bruins. You, you've kind of got that, that, old, that, old, that old almost Puritan mentality of everything hurts and we're all dying is dissipating. Boston's title town. Yeah. And they want more. So, and, oh, and also at this point, uh, the Celtics have won a championship too. Right, in two thousand eight. Yep, behind the behind the big three, Ray Allen, uh, Kevin Garnett, and Paul Pierce. Yeah, the truth can't argue with it. Absolutely not. But in two thousand, so following the title in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, the Red Sox try their best to repeat, but can't. They get beaten seven games in the ALCS by the Tampa Bay Rays. It's a tough series. Yeah, two thousand nine. Yankees win. 2009, the Yankees win, but the Red Sox also make the playoffs. Swept out of the playoffs by swept out of the playoffs by the Anaheim Angels. In 2010, they have a down year. They only finish third. You know, so I mean, what are you going to do? Well, you've got to retool. You've got to you've got to get back. You know, 2010. uh, Remind me, that was that was not Francona's last year, right? 2010 was not Francona's last year. Yeah, it was the following year that that Tito was gone. Yeah, it was the following year. Yeah, and. That was the that was the first year that Carl Crawford played with the Red Sox. So in the offseason, it's this it, it becomes time to set the Red Sox up for the next ten years. Sure. Signs two guys, Carl Crawford, Adrian Gonzalez. Yeah, because and Adrian Gonzalez, you first got um, with the trade with the Padres. Mm-hmm. The seven year the seven year twins. Seven year twins. All right. Carl Crawford signs for seven years, one hundred forty two million. Sure. Aaron Gonzalez, uh, Adrian Gonzalez signs for seven years, one hundred fifty four million. All and, right. th- and that and that's that sets them up for, right. for 2011. And drumroll, please. How did Carl Crawford fare his first year in uh, in Boston? I'm gonna say not well. Okay. But the Red Sox didn't lose, I don't think, because of Carl Crawford. So the Sox go 55 and 35 the first half of that year, yeah. and then the second half they hit the swoon of swoons. Mm-hmm. So they they go through. They ended up going 35 and 37. But if you look at the schedule month by month, it's mm-hmm. worse than that. Mm-hmm. They basically collapse in December. This is chicken and beer. Yeah. This is, uh, this is, you know, there's hints that Terry Francona completely lost control of that clubhouse. There was that unsubstantiated rumor that he was addicted to pills too because of all his knee surgeries. Absolutely unsubstantiated. Yeah. Uh, but the bottom line, the bottom line is the Red Sox end their season in Baltimore, losing to the Orioles yeah. after Buck Showalter manages the game like it was Game 7 of the World Series. Buck Showalter always do, did, man, especially with the Orioles, he managed like he had a chip on his shoulder. I think there was bad blood between the Sox and the, or- and the O's that year. I, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I, look, I wasn't on the field. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in the clubhouse. But I think there was bad blood there. But Carl Crawford... For all his, you know, for 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 all the money, for all the money that they'd given him, quite frankly, I don't think he's the reason the Red Sox lost. You know, the Red Sox missed the playoffs in the last game of the season against the Orioles, but he sure, certainly didn't help matters. He batted two fifty five. Yep. With uh, something like something like ten or eleven home runs. Uh, eleven home runs, fifty six RBIs, and only eighteen steals, and that's down from forty seven the year before. He didn't play or look. Like himself, I mean, I'll say I'll say this much. I because um, people say that um, baseball players, you can put them on any team, they'll do fine. Right. I think Carl Crawford is a perfect example of why of how that is not the case. I, and I think he reveals that later in 2013, 2016. He does a, he, you know he does appearances with the media when he's in LA. But I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the bottom but the bottom line is is that 
you know, the Red Sox that year didn't play all that well down the stretch. And I think Carl Crawford, to a certain extent, got scapegoated a little bit by the media. Although he did. The, the media wasn't kind to him. Yeah. Um, to say the least. Because people, a lot of people don't understand that. And this is this is for the casual fans who may have only witnessed Crawford's uh, underachieving in Boston from afar. Carl Crawford, when he was playing in his prime years of the race, he was playing for Joe Madden, who you now know as the, as the coach of, uh, or the manager of the Chicago Cubs. Joe Madden, before he managed the Rays, was Mike Socha's bench coach you know, with the Angels. Now, if you know anything about how Mike Socha managed in his prime, it was all about being aggressive. It was about contact hitting. If you see something in the strike zone, swing it and try to put it anywhere on the field and hope for the best. When you get on base, steal a base. The kind of proto-Astros-Sox-Dodgers approach. Yes, it was... It was the Astros' approach, but there was but there was less focus on contact quality and uh, line drive rate. Let's say. Mm-hmm. Whereas with Carl Crawford, he's used to hitting the ball all over the field. Uh, he, um, he's getting triples. He's getting doubles. He was a great contact hitter, and I think that moving to Boston, maybe it was pressure on, that he put on himself. I feel that, be it management or another factor entirely, he tried to become a pull hitter. Well, let's let's actually. Let Carl Crawford tell us what it was. Okay, Crawford, what, what do you got? Because oh, now now let me set the stage with this. Um, a year, the next year, or maybe it was the year after, um, the Dodgers. It was in 2012. 2012. The Dodgers are bought by this this huge group in, uh, that's uh, headlined by Magic Johnson, former Lakers star. Big group, lots yeah. of money. And they say, and they say to the Red Sox, "Hey, you got all these bad contracts. You got we see Gonzalez, we see Crawford." We got Josh Beckett, and we'll th- and we'll throw and we'll throw some other guys in there just for fun. Send them our way. We'll take care of the money because they wanted immediate impact yeah. in LA. Yes, and so we sent them all those contracts. Yeah, and all those players. So 2012 goes by. The Red Sox don't do very well in 2012, but in 2013, well. You know, Carl Crawford starts talking, and he talks about the Boston media. That smile turned upside down real quick. Crawford says, "I think they want to see you. I think they want to see that in Boston. They love it when you're miserable, burying people in the media. They think that makes a person play better. The media was the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. I took so much of a beating in Boston." Crawford said, "I don't think anything could bother me anymore." They can say whatever they want, that I'm the worst free agent ever, and it won't get to me. But it bothered me the whole time there. Yeah, and that that's very similar to what David Wells said about the media. Uh, just because, like... Boston is like New York in that they is and that the fans demand results, right? Because like in recent years they've gotten used to winning or or like coming with within so close of grabbing of grabbing that championship only to have it snatched away. I don't know what makes the 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 media what makes the media more intense because there's obviously no objective measure that I have for it. Whether or not it's now what you're talking about, which is the need for results, because yeah. look, Boston is to a certain extent title town in a lot of sports, or the desperation to win that title that it's been so long since they won that made the media equally as vicious, well, I think. Well, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, In though. the 90s and the 80s and all that Correct me if, I, if I'm wrong. Boston, despite having several well-known colleges in the area, is a blue-collar city. I think so. Yeah, and when, when you have a blue-collar mentality, it's all about working hard, like getting up when you're down. And so I guess that these fa- a lot of these fans feel that 
if the teams aren't working as hard as they do, like, why should they get any praise? I mean, I think what the fans expect is that somebody who's brought here on on a contract the size of Crawford's. Yes. Because it, it's a gaudy-looking contract when that, you Because his was, was like seven years, 150, right? Seven years, 142. Adrian okay. Gonzalez's was seven years, 154. And Adrian Gonzalez yeah. produced. Yeah, yeah. It, Gonzalez was fine. He did okay. Uh, his the, his power numbers were down. Yeah, his power his power numbers were down considering how how probably I can hit a home run. In, I think in, he had uh, a wrist. Way. I think he had a wrist injury late in 2011. Or maybe it was the maybe it was the start of his back problems that he has now. Right, because he went. You know, he was hitting. But yeah. he wasn't hitting for a ton of power. But be that as it may, I think when the fans see, and I don't look, I'm not going to talk about you know the the psychological profile of the city of Boston. But what I will say is that as a fan of any team, when you see somebody coming in for a gaudy contract like seven years and 142 million, which at the time was a really gaudy contract, yeah, you do expect them to produce. And I think, you know, I think that I. I know personally as a fan, I got fed up with Carl Crawford because he wasn't hitting like he, you know, like he hit in, in Tampa Bay. He wasn't batting 300. He wasn't batting any. He wasn't anywhere close, you know. And that's and that would and that was an issue. But you know, it's really sad to see that in some ways, you know, I, I kind of think that the media ran him out of town. It may well be. All right, Paul. Well, I'm going to counter your Carl Crawford with our last bit of the day: the Yankees' worst contract signings now. I poured through so many bad decisions. Right. So Jacoby Ellsbury, seven years, one hundred fifty-three million dollars. I'm not going to talk about that because it's a stinker. Yeah, it's, it's a stinker. stinker. Um, <laughs> I could talk about Ken Griffey Senior, who, okay, it wasn't the best deal, but it, had he not been when, on, when he wasn't injured, he was performing at or around like what we expected of him. Right. No, I have got a twofer for you because the Yankees are. Man, we can't have some bad contracts. Hit me. I love a good deal. We got two pitching contracts, one from the 80s, one from more recently. Which one do you want me to start with? Get the one from the 80s. All right. From the 80s, we have this man, Ed Whitson. Ed Whitson? Ed Whitson was someone who had helped lead the San Diego Padres to the World Series in 1984. Um, Right-handed pitcher, I believe, or or a lefty. I can't remember which. (coughs) I should have wrote that down. But anyway... It's, 19, it's the head of the 1985 season. George Steinbrenner, who at this point is still triggered about having lost the 1981 World Series to the Los Angeles Dodgers, and is throwing money everywhere. He's being like Oprah Winfrey. You give money. You get money. Everybody gets money. Uh, Ed Whitson got a five-year, $4.4 million contract. Which big, that, big dollars yeah, for that time. For that time, very big dollars. Now, Ed Whitson, over the course of this contract... Goes 15 and 10 Whoa. with a 5.39 ERA. Brutal. And that's in less than two years. Brutal. What happened? Well, a lot of it had to do with the fact he didn't like Billy Martin. They, they actually got into a fight where Whitson broke Martin's arm. I don't think George Steinbrenner liked Billy Martin either, but. Yeah, well, he liked enough to hire him five different times. <laughs> but uh, it got so bad that Whitson the following year was relegated to the bullpen, posted an ERA at like above seven, I think in a Yankee uniform coming out of the pen as a mop-up guy for Lou Pinella to the point where he is traded back to the Padres. What would you know? Do we know what the source of his disagreements with Billy Martin were? Uh, Billy Martin was just a hard guy to get along with. I mean, be, that, but he also had a specific type of player that that he liked. Did, did Ed Whitson, do you think, not fit that role? I don't think he fit that role at all because if you read Sparky Lyle's book, The Bronx Zoo, which is basically a diary of the 1978 season, mm-hmm. Sparky's going on and on about how Billy Martin and Art Fowler are just mismanaging pitchers 
Um, and a lot, and he blames a lot of it on signing Goose Gossage because Sparky Lyle won the Cy Young Award as the Yankees' closer in 1977 and got relegated to being like a setup and mop-up guy the following year just because George Steinbrenner saw Gossage and had to throw money at him. And this is a very similar deal, I think, with Whitson where um, he says, you know what, the key to to winning a title, we got to get all those big fish like we did with Reggie Jackson, Catfish yeah. Hunter, and he got Whitson, and Whitson was much like Ted Lilly, uh, much like, not like Ted Lilly, much like Jeff Weaver and uh, Sonny Gray, who we mentioned earlier, Whitson just couldn't pitch in New York. Yeah, somebody who just never panned out in the town. Yeah, um, and so, well, like I said, 15 and 10, 5.39 ERA in Ooh. less than two years, Ooh. and it is definitely one of the worst deals in Yankees history, but weren't all, we weren't that worse for the wear for it because we were able to move it before it was even up. Which brings me to the next one. Connecticut's own Carl Pavano. You know, he's from Southington. It's a, it's a, a town, or at least a couple towns over from where I was. I was born in Waterbury, so it's a, it's a couple towns over from where I was born, and a town over from where I did much of my growing up, Cheshire. Yeah. I mean, he, look, if you're... So you're saying you basically grew up around country clubs? If you are... If you are a Connecticut, I'm not going to answer that. If you are <laughs> in, if you are a resident of Connecticut of a certain age, you remember Carl Pavano being in the paper. Yeah, because Carl Pavano was a local high school star, went on to, and then I think he made his debut with the Montreal Expos. Mm-hmm. But, but the reason the Yankees had him on their radar was in 2004, pitching for the Florida Marlins, Carl Pavano went 18 and eight with an ERA of three. He did well. Yes. And this is exactly why the Yankees did not go after Patrick Corbin mm-hmm. or Nathan Avaldi, because when push comes to shove, these are guys who really have one good year under their belts. Yeah. You don't want to pay a lot of money for that. And it's in a, in a, in a, in a, in a pitcher-friendly situation. Yes. Carl Pavano did that in a, very, in a situation that was very friendly and beneficial to his talents. Well, here's the kicker. This is also after, the 2000, after 2004 when the Red Sox... Did what they did, to say the least. <laughs> you know what you did. Look, if you're not going to hash, grounded. If you're not going to hash '86, I won't rehash 2004. So we'll call it true. I'm not a Mets fan. I don't need. I don't need to rehash '86. Anyway, so Carl Bovano, um, he joins Jarrett Wright as the marquee free agent for the Yankees that year, and Jarrett Wright, who had just had a comeback year with the Atlanta Braves, despite several shoulder problems while he was with Cleveland. So he got three years, $21 million, but we're going to talk about Pavano, who got four years and $39.95 million. Here's what blows my mind not about... Not terrible. Not terrible, but here's what blows my mind. Carl Pavano turned down more money from several other teams just to come to the Yankees. Oh, well, you know... So he, so he knew from the get-go he wanted to put on the pinstripes. He's a local guy. Yeah, and I appreciated that being like 18 or 19 when it happened. Right. Anyway, so it's a four-year deal, and it's it's... An even bigger disaster than Winston because Winston we got rid of him early. It wasn't exactly a match made in heaven, was it? Carl Pavano over the in four years in those four years goes nine and eight with an ERA of five, twenty six starts. He spent a lot of time in the DL. Yes. Now, two thousand five, he um, <laughs> he ran headfirst into shoulder trouble, which mm-hmm. okay, that's going to happen. Um, but it was also very clear he did not look comfortable in New York. Do you think if he stayed healthy? Do you think if he stayed healthy and had and had the and had the amount of reps that you know that first year or that second year that he really needed to get under his belt um, to maybe get comfortable? Do you think it would have been a different story? No, and here's why. Hit me. So he missed all of 2006 recovering from shoulder from shoulder issues. 
a report came out then. Um, I I wish I had uh, I had brought it in here because I only just remembered it. A report came out that he was ta- he was kind of taking it slow with his rehab. Mm-hmm. Then he was in a car accident and fractured a rib, so that delayed everything. And then something came out where he was he was with the team, mind you, but he was kind of half-assing his rehab. One guy said, "Oh, like if." If he's like too hurt, too hurt to rehab, why is he getting a massage? Almost like he didn't want to play anymore. Yeah, and now it gets worse. 2007 comes along. The Yankees are hit with the injury bug in spring training. Mm-hmm. Bobby Abreu's hamstring is acting up. Bobby Abreu. Um, Chin Ming Wong has has a hamstring, I think. So Carl Pavano, by the cruelest twist of fate, is our opening day starter against the Twins. Now. He, fig- he pitches and you think, okay, like he's shaking some rust off, but he'll be okay. Two weeks later, he needs Tommy John surgery. Oh, my God. And then he comes back to make a small handful of starts in 2008 and then goes off to join the Cleveland Indians, followed by the Minnesota Twins, and he plays a few more years. Everything's great. But to answer your question, I do not think that had he gotten the prop reps and stayed healthy, he would have done well in New York because these are the Joe Torre years. Yeah. Joe Torre, as much as I love the guy for what he did for my team, Joe Torre was passive to a fault. And when you have players saying to the media, if this guy is too hurt, why is he getting a massage? If, if he's getting in a car accident and it takes a while to communicate, yeah. he would not have fared well in New York, and I think that ultimately he would have been traded or run out of town. Because Joe Torre was... At the time, he was not one for accountability. I mean, he was just uh, not Joe Torre, but but Carl Pavano, and I'm not talking about him as a person. I'm talking about him as a pitcher. Yeah, um, he was just one of those guys that just, I mean, from from the a casual observer standpoint, just really never seemed to have panned out. He never seemed to really be able to get a, a good foothold to put together that streak of starts that would really yeah. establish him to get, you know, to get the fans behind him, to get the media behind him. He just never seemed to be able to kind of get his bearings when he was there. Well, this was also before the before the age of analytics in baseball where we really knew like, okay, is he going to fit with the clubhouse? Do right. I have all, the, all these random numbers that I can't even begin to think about? Right. I mean, I, I think analytics, I think to, to be to be quite honest, I think analytics was affecting the game even then. But I, th- I, I feel like it feels like it was more on the on the hitting side of things. I think you know, pitching analytics has taken a little bit it's taken a little bit longer to, uh, to to set in than 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 hitting analytics. But. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna say this much though. Um, this is the You May Marry podcast, but uh, Paul, I'm gonna say when it comes to a uh, bad offseason decisions, uh, the Red Sox. Um, I think that I'm right in this case. Um, I, I think the Yankees have it worse. I mean, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna disagree with you because we traded away one of the one of the foremost uh, first basemen of the '90s, and we also signed I think maybe the biggest money bust yeah. in the history of baseball. Definitely one of them. I I think I'm right, but you may be right. All right, well. That's going to be it for the show today, folks. It's been great talking with Paul, per usual. Uh, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, Josh, just uh, just just want to tell everybody to um, uh, to log on to your podcatcher to catch this. Yeah. Um, the episode will be up as yeah, we soon are, as we can put it up. Yeah. Now, now, folks, the key is you need to search for "You May Be Right" podcast. Exactly. That's if you're looking on Apple. I believe we're on Stitcher. We're on uh, Spotify soon. I think you're on. Ca- <laughs> oh, that's our timer. <laughs> you're on Castbox. You can find it there. You can find it at, at, at yeah. all your friendly local local uh, local neighborhood podcatchers. Yeah. Now, th- another thing you could do to help out this podcast: follow 
Elite Sports NY on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Sports by JB. Or not, not Sports by JB. That's my old Twitter. JB's World 3286. Uh, do you have a Twitter? I forget. Um, I have a Twitter that I'm currently setting up, and right. I'll have it ready for you guys next episode. All right. Well, uh, also, you could uh, be sure to listen in next week. Uh, what are we going to talk about next week? We'll figure it out. But thanks so much for listening to the You May Be Right podcast, part of Elite Sports New York, the pulse of New York City sports. Uh, and guys, remember, Paul, you may be wrong, but for all I know, you may be right. Good talking to you, Josh. Or I may be crazy. Good night, folks. Thanks for listening to Elite Sports Radio. Stay elite. Some folks like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood. Hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood. When I'm taking a greyhound on the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind I've seen all the movie stars in their fancy cars and their limousines 